Hello and welcome to a special crossover episode of What is Black? Um, I'm co-hosting with uh, my colleagues from Health and Home with the Hippocratic Hosts and also uh, Flesh, and, Flesh and Bold. I'm your host of What is Black podcast, um, Jacqueline Duget, and I will um, have my other co-hosts introduce themselves. I'm Lonre Falusi, co-host of Health and Home with the Hippocratic Hosts. I'm Lisa Verghese Kroll, co-host of Health and Home with the Hippocratic Hosts. Hi, I'm Nevin Hurd. I'm a co-host of Flesh and Bold. So today we're going to talk about COVID-19 vaccination with special guests, Dr. Lauren A. Smith and Dr. Letitia Jarasa. Dr. Smith is the Chief Health Equity and Strategy Officer for the CDC Foundation, and Dr. Jarasa is the Commissioner of Health for the Baltimore City Health Department. So just for some background, you know, COVID-19, as we all know, has disproportionately impacted communities of color with increased numbers of death and illness in both children and adults. Many of these disparities are attributed to the effects of systemic racism that's manifested in environmental, housing, health, and economic policies that then lead to these higher percentages of parents of color working as frontline or essential workers, overcrowded housing, and of course, decreased access to healthcare. In addition, there is a long history of distress in the medical system, such as the Tuskegee experiment, even going back to times of slavery, uh, where there, I think that's really where some of the roots of the distress of, of the healthcare system um, may have started in the United States. Um, also underfunding of health programs for Native Americans and historic feelings of discrimination by the healthcare system. We also have some child data um, from the COVID Kid Project. Um, the purpose of that project, which stands for Coronavirus and Kids um, Tracking and Education Project, um, their purpose is to monitor and compile epidemiologic surveillance data on COVID-19 in kids and teens in the United States. So as of September 2020, according to their data, Black and Hispanic youth made up more than 50% of child deaths due to COVID-19. Just for some additional data, compared to non-Hispanic white children, Asian and Pacific Islander children are 2.1 times more likely to die from COVID-19. Black, uh, sorry, Hispanic children are 4.7 times more likely to die from COVID-19. Black children are 5.3 times more likely to die from COVID-19. And American Indian and Alaska Native children are 7.6 times more likely to die from COVID-19 compared to non-Hispanic white children. So we're gonna, we wanna welcome our guests um, and thank them for joining us today to discuss this important topic. Um, so thank you for joining us, Dr. Smith and Dr. DeRaza. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. How are you both doing today <laughs> in the midst of all of this? Well, for me, today is a very exciting day. I'm, I'm feeling hopeful. Um, and uh, looking, looking forward, but also thinking very uh, seriously about what we have been experiencing so that we can learn from that as we do to go forward. Yeah, I share in Dr. Smith's excitement. Um, we are, uh, I'm at the local health department, so in the midst of doing vaccine rollout, so I'm, I'm also tired, but I am excited too. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to we're going to get started by discussing the issues surrounding access to the COVID-19 vaccine. 
As Lonry mentioned, health equity and inequities are one obstacle and distrust of the healthcare system in communities of color is another. So how are each of your agencies working to address health equity in terms of access to and communication about the COVID-19 vaccine? You can go first, Letitia. Okay, um, I, I think those are great questions. Um, so I'll start first with access. Um, you know, when we developed our prioritization matrix in alignment with the CDC's recommendations, uh, we were very aware um, that access would be a challenge um, for, for certain individuals throughout our community. We're thinking of people with um, poor mobility or individuals who rely on public transit, um, older adults. Um, we, we designed our prioritization schema with all of that in mind. Um, and so we've been, been conscious of that even as we're setting up our pods. Um, we recently transitioned to a pod in the city that is accessible by transit. Um, again, really focusing on how do we make this um, accessible. We've also taken a multi-pronged approach. So we recognize that there's gonna be the place for the mass vaccination pods. We also recognize that individuals are gonna to go to their trusted medical home if it's a federally qualified health center. And so how do we work with our, our local FQHCs to ensure that the right individuals, um, you know, those that may be older, um, those that have a trusted medical provider that they can go to um, get there. You know, we help a lot with that kind of that care coordination and outreach. Um, likewise, we're developing a mobile vaccine strategy. Um, so working with our healthcare partners, um, we would develop this mobile team that, that we would deploy. And we did this in the spring. Um, we've done this around testing. We did this around um, infection control needs at long-term care facilities. Um, but working with healthcare partners um, to really go into senior housing sites, for example, that will be one of the populations. But going into senior housing sites, um, you know, based on relationships and partnerships that we've already established through the flu vaccine work that we did in the summer um, and fall um, to provide that vaccine on site. So that's how we're um, ensuring access is, is equitable um, in terms of you know, how we're approaching vaccine dissemination. Messaging, we've been very specific and focused on working with community groups um, as well as the local community to understand what do you wanna see in messaging? Um, do you wanna see individuals who look like you? Is it important that um, public figures get it? So I think we're, we're exploring um, all sorts of avenues, whether it's social media, um, knowing that we're gonna need to, to, to use all of those in order to, to get the message across to many different people. And that's you know really wonderful to hear. And I'm really glad that you went first because our role at the CDC Foundation really is to support and partner with state, local, tribal, territory, territorial public health departments who want to deploy their resources just as Dr. Darissa was talking about. So we have supported both surge staff uh, in multiple jurisdictions uh, across the country and territories to be able to do the kinds of activities that you were saying. Unfortunately, and I'm sure Letitia, this will resonate with you, many public health departments at all levels have been chronically underfunded and have suffered significant disinvestment so they weren't in a position to respond um, to this crisis as they want to and know how to do, but they didn't have the staff to do it. So the CDC Foundation has uh, put more than 900 staff across the country, uh, epidemiologists, contact tracers, laboratory scientists, um, analysts, statisticians, all of the kinds of skill sets that a vibrant public health department needs we've been able to support that surge staffing um, 
uh, in, a, in a modest way uh, across the country. So partnering with uh, public health across the country is one way. The other is through partnering with community-based organizations. You know, we just heard, and I think I, I, you know, have to plus one, the idea that people want to get information from and through organizations, messengers, you know, folks that they know that just didn't arrive in their neighborhoods like five minutes ago to tell them to do something, but but people they've been seeing who, who they know have their best interests at heart and who are you know, really there to um, engage and partner with them. So we've been working uh, closely with uh, partners, both national organizations that have local affiliates or branches, as well as individual uh, organizations ac across the country to do precisely the kind of outreach um, and connecting um, that uh, community-based organizations are you know, really poised and situated uh, to do. So thank you so much, Dr. Smith and Dr. Jarasa. You all had, you know, really highlighted some strategies, you know, to, to communicate to, um, to various communities, um, different populations within our, within our communities. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about specifically outreach to um, families of color and also maybe giving, giving an opportunity to really kind of share, um, you know, some of the terminology that was brought up, right? You know, we are public health, medical field, right? We tend to talk a lot about, you know, the different systems that exist, but I think, you know, even establishing that trust and strategies, I think it would be helpful for um, listeners to really understand, you know, what an FQHC is, what is surge capacity. And also if you could share, um, share some of that information. Sure, and I, I'm, I'm glad you are calling attention to it and I'll do my best to avoid all of the, uh, the shortcuts and acronyms that were you know, so used so easily. So when I said surge capacity, I mean additional staff for local and state public health departments to be able to do basic key public health activities and tasks that are uh, required during a pandemic response. So they, by surge, it's like the surge in need needs to be met by a, a, a related or equivalent surge in capacity and availability of people to do the work. So when I said surge, that's what I meant. And I would say, I guess, just, just adding on, I think the question was also related to um, reaching out to communities of color. Um, one of the things that we started early on in the pandemic um, were town halls. Um, and we, we use a couple different types of platforms. Um, so we certainly have done kind of the Facebook live streaming town hall, maybe for um, the millennial or the younger population. It would usually um, feature me and, and a co-host that was typically um, a community leader or faith-based leader. Um, and then we've also done telephonic town halls. Um, and that usually would, uh, would uh, get our older adults. So a lot of our older adults um, would use the telephone town hall as a way to call in. Um, and we've continued to do the same thing around the COVID vaccine um, is, is again, the kind of the live online platform, but also we'll do a telephonic town hall um, related to the COVID vaccine. We're, we're, we'll do a couple, a series of those for, for our older adults. Yes, and just to add on to that, you know, one of the things that we've been doing at the foundation is um, through partnering with coalitions like the Black Coalition you know, Against COVID as an example of health professionals and health providers, 
Um, there've been a number of virtual town halls uh, like Dr. Duressa is talking about that we've participated in. I've also uh, connected with specific health systems and uh, groups of health providers uh, because we know that those providers of color are gonna be the ones that are um, really gonna be on the front line of having the conversations with folks who may be interested in getting a vaccine and those uh, with, with folks who may be hesitant or have concerns or questions about it. So we've been um, looking to reach to providers who serve uh, communities of color to be able to answer their questions, provide them with information and um, messaging and, and really sort of brainstorm with them about uh, connecting with people to be able to address the very real and um, uh, reasons that people may be hesitant to receive the vaccine. So you've both talked a bit about partnerships, which I think we all agree is key. Kind of, can you talk a little bit more about that and it, uh, even going forward, what additional strategies are needed to overcome the mistrust of the vaccination by many people of color? You know, what, what different sectors can do? What can we do in the healthcare sector or, um, or even more broadly to, um, to work on that, to try to help people overcome that mistrust? I would, I would just, you know, start off by saying that um, I, I uh, too, am a pediatrician like Dr. Devasa and, and practiced for, um, you know, a couple decades. And a key aspect in connecting with folks to be able to address their concerns is to acknowledge the validity of their concerns and to listen with empathy and openness so that you can hear what's at the root of what their concerns are so that then you can begin to address it and be able to, to not counter, but sort of respond to some of the myths and bad information that people have, not knowing that, that in fact, you know, what they're concerned about is, is false or that you know, they've been get, receiving you know, incomplete or sometimes just you know, inaccurate um, or untrue information. So acknowledging that their feelings are, are reasonable. You started at the top of the podcast, you know, listing a lot of the reasons why people might have some concerns. So acknowledging that and reckoning with that. And then providing facts. I think providing facts in a objective way from a place of caring, um, from a place of wanting to protect you and your family and your loved ones, um, I think is really important. And then the last thing I would say is to not inadvertently reinforce the misinformation and false information that folks have been um, uh, sort of inundated with, unfortunately. So to be always speaking from facts, from truth, and uh, from that place of uh, empathy and understanding. Yeah, I completely agree with Dr. Smith. I mean, I think um, certainly one of the things that we've tried to do and, and have done since the beginning when we're messaging to the public is being as transparent as possible, right? And acknowledging what we don't know, right? So in addition to, um, you know, acknowledging that the fears and the concerns that people have are grounded in some historical truths, how do we also say, you know, this is still a novel coronavirus. This is a new vaccine. There are things that we know right now and there are things that we don't know. But as we learn them, we will be honest and we will be transparent about what we're learning. Yes, I told that commitment to transparency and being clear about where, what are things we know 
as an example, we know that this vaccine cannot give you COVID. So we know that, and we can talk about why that is. We, we will be following very carefully is how things go, you know, years from now. We don't know that, but that transparency and commitment to come back to be able to talk about whatever we find at a regular cadence so that people aren't wondering like if there's something, some shoe that hasn't dropped, I think is really important. I think one other thing I was going to, to mention, and I wonder if Dr. Dressa, how you're, you're focusing on this or how you're finding it is around describing how vaccines work in general, but how this specific vaccine works because it is different than other vaccines that we as pediatricians would routinely do or, or provide for uh, our patients. And so I think um, you know many Americans really don't have any understanding of how vaccine, vaccines work in general, let alone how this particular unique vaccine works. So I think, you know, part of what we have to do is explain that in um, very under, you know, uh, layman's terms so that, you know, people can really um, take in the information so that they're prepared to make an informed choice. But if people don't even understand how vaccinations are supposed to work, then they're not able to make an informed choice. So they're more susceptible to all of the myths and misinformation that might be um, floating and, around. And during our town halls, we do take time to review the mechanism by which the vaccine works. Um, we've also spent a little bit of time on clinical trials because mm -hmm. that question comes up a lot. You know, the speed with which this was, um, you know, created is, you know, how did it happen so quickly? I think, you know, people also, you know, I think if you're in medicine, you kind of understand what a clinical trial is, um, but but the lay person doesn't understand how things move through a clinical trial and, um, and doesn't understand that, you know, we typically um, in a clinical trial, you know, wouldn't necessarily start with children and pregnant women. And so, you know, th that's why there's no safety data around that particular group at this point. Um, so we've spent time talking about that as well as um, the differences between the vaccines that have been approved. So we do um, spend some time reviewing that as well. So I think that, I think that might be a good time to really kind of talk a little bit more about, about the vaccine. Cause I know people, I, cause I even polled my family and friends to, to try to figure out like what, you know, what are the burning questions that they have? Um, and so we can, I guess we can, we can talk a little bit more about, about that so that our, so our listeners have a better understanding of, like you said, you know, what the vaccine is and how the vaccine, how the vaccine works. Yeah, I think historically, we know that vaccines have taken years to achieve approval and then become widely available. So can you expound a little bit on that and talk to us about, about how it was that the COVID-19 vaccine was made so quickly and whether that should be a cause for concern? Well, one thing I would say is that the messenger RNA, which is the kind of vaccine that this is, um, because of the type of vaccine and the way it's um, produced, it was able to be produced more quickly just because of not having to 
grow up the virus and, and just the, the mechanisms of how you make the vaccine allowed it to be produced more quickly and um, to be able to be ramped up. But one thing that I emphasize in talking about this is this, we've been working with, or scientists have known about messenger RNA, again, which is this type of vaccine for, for a number of years. And there's been efforts at developing vaccine for a number of years. So this isn't the first time this has come to pass. But fortunately, um, science has advanced uh, since people were trying to use this for Zika and Ebola and other kinds of infectious diseases so that at this point, they were able to really um, move more quickly. The other thing is that they've also, in the trials, were able to do things in parallel, whereas in uh, more typical times, they have to do things um, one after each other, one after another, which takes longer to do, but you know, they you know, took the steps to try these things in parallel. But Dr. Driss, I'm sure there's other things you would add to. No, I mean, I think you you hit the nail on the head. I mean, we, we we've kind of talked about um, in some of our, our town halls is um, what does it mean to, to be a messenger RNA, right? We get the question a lot, is this going to change my DNA? Um, and we make very clear that that's not how messenger RNA vaccines work. Um, and we, we talk about antibodies and so messenger RNA coming in um, to produce the, the spike protein, which goes on your cells does not affect your DNA, um, but does um, trigger your body to produce antibodies to fight off um, coronavirus if it were to appear. But we make very clear you're not being injected with the virus because we, we do get that question a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think what I've heard um, anecdotally is it made a difference, right? That one of the prime scientists that developed the vaccine was a, was a black woman or is a black woman. And I think our representation and what I've seen, you know, and many of your 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 talks about the vaccine is that again utilizing um, doctors of color that are trustworthy, you know, by many patients has also been I think very vital, right, in really getting that message out about the about the vaccine. So I'm saying all this to say that you know there's still questions people have about the vaccine, but hopefully I think that provides some legitimacy, right, in understanding that you know this was a well thought out thought out vaccine. And we utilized the technology, right, and the funding um, that sort of went into and really helping um, the, the manufacturers develop the vaccine, which I'm so happy that they have. And I've gotten vaccinated. And I don't know if you all could talk a little bit about, um, you know, like some nuts and bolts about the vaccine side effects of the vaccine. If you've received the vaccine yourself, uh, to, to also um, talk a little bit more about that. Sure, so I received the vaccine. Um, I guess it's been two weeks ago now. Um, so I, I am a public health professional and also have been trying to help at our vaccine pods when I can find the time. Um, so I did get vaccinated. So I've gotten my first dose so far. Um, I experienced um, just a little bit of soreness in my arm and a headache um, just for, uh, and the headache actually went away when I took you know, Tylenol. So that even that was a, a relatively mild side effect. Um, same thing, the soreness in my arm went away after about 48 hours. Um, and this is a, a common side effect. So what we know of, of the COVID vaccines um, is that you can have you know, pain, redness, um, uh, soreness of the arm. Um, and, and this is similar to what we see with flu vaccine as well. So some individuals also experience the same thing um, with flu vaccine. Additionally, you can have, like I said, the headache that I had um, 
some people have muscle pain, joint pain, um, fatigue, fever, um, and, and this is also more commonly reported after um, the second dose. So I haven't gotten my second dose yet, so I'm not sure what the, what the side effects will be. But again, um, you know, my, milder symptoms, and, and I'll, if I do have side effects, we'll take you know, Tylenol or Motrin um, to, to combat those. And the, the thing I think to also, you know, make sure that listeners understand is the side effects that Dr. Jarissa just talked about are also a signal that the body is in fact responding to the vaccine and preparing for the next time it's going to be ready. So all of those things that she described are uh, a way that our body uh, responds to, you know, uh, an infection threat. And so those are it's not that it's good that she experienced them, but it is a sign that her body was responding to the vaccine. So some other questions that, you know, that came up again for my mini poll of family, right? Um, so they wanted to know, is the vaccine, you know, we've heard a lot in the news about the mutated strains of the, of, of the virus. And so I know a lot of people had questions about that and how frequently the vaccine would have to be administered, would it be similar to the flu vaccine? So I was wondering if you could um, talk a little bit about, about that as well. Sure, so I think based on what we know right now, and again, using that based on what we know right now, um, you know, it does appear that it will be effective against the, the mutations. Um, but again, that's based on information we have now. Um, I think we're still determining um, if this is this will be an annual thing similar to the flu vaccine. So I think we'll you know continue to study again those individuals that were in the, the initial trials. Um, but I think that that's something we, we don't know yet. Um, you know, will it be annual versus will it be um, you know one and, and, and you're fine. Mm -hmm. One other thing just to, to mention about the trials that I, I bet came up in some of your questions and I was going to mention this, which is, you know people are asking or wondering were people of color included? were people who had chronic illness or underlying conditions included? Because a lot of people want, will wanna know, well, you know, I have diabetes, I have heart disease or hypertension. Um, is it okay for me to take it? And I think it would be, it is important. And I'm, I'm sure that, that that's happening in Baltimore as you're talking about that, right? That you can say, hey, you know, there were, um, you know, uh, uh, people of color in the trials. There were people with, uh, chronic illness in the trials. So there was a significant, I think, effort made to be sure that the clinical trials uh, were representative. And then just following up a little bit more, when you talk about the clinical trials, if you can talk a little bit more about, um, I guess, the rollout of the vaccine, right? So right now, I know in many, many cities, many states that um, healthcare providers are really like the, the first on the list and assisted, you know, individuals might in nursing homes. But, you know, there've been questions about, you know, when will children get the vaccine um, and how that plays also with the clinical trial in terms of, you know, who gets the vaccine based on those trials as well. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, as of right now, um, there was one vaccine, the Pfizer, that was an individual 16 and above. Um, and the other Moderna was 18 and above. Um, I know that they're beginning clinical trials in children as young as 12, um, but I don't know that we, we had that information on, on timeline. So I think it, it kind of brings up a good point, right? And that, that it will be extremely important for parents and grandparents 
um, than to, to get the vaccine to help um, with developing um, that herd immunity that we're looking to achieve. But, um, you know, I think that, again, what I would reassure people is that this is, it's not abnormal that, that children weren't included in those initial clinical trials and, um, and we'll just need more time. Right, and, and I just wanna underscore that um, recommendation for, the, uh, for adults to get vaccinated, you know, when, you know, their turns come up. Uh, we talk about in pediatrics, this concept of cocooning. So a lot of times, you know, infants and young children, when they can't get a certain vaccine, um, we really uh, emphasize and, uh, and uh, encourage uh, the adults around them to get the vaccine. So they create a, a cocoon of protection around that, that infant or child. And so I think this would fall into that category also. Then we have some questions thinking about sort of after someone gets the vaccine or looking you know, forward over the next several months. So if people receive the vaccine, do they still need to wear a mask or should they feel that they are now protected and don't need to wear masks anymore? Yeah, so I, I threw out a word. I know we were supposed to be avoiding certain terms, but I threw out that word herd immunity. Um, and, and I threw that out there because, um, you know, the, the part of the, the vaccine is to help us obviously to eliminate coronavirus. Um, but, but we will need to achieve a certain amount of immunity um, in our population for us to get to that point, probably somewhere between 60 to 80 percent. Um, and so we know that obviously the, 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 the vaccine does help with, um, you know, reducing severity of illness, if you are exposed to COVID and, and um, you know, reducing your, your, um, your chances of, of, of getting the virus. Um, but, but it, you know, there, there is still um, a lot of uh, virus circulating. We've not yet achieved the herd immunity. So it will be extremely important that even once you're vaccinated, um, you know, until we get to that point that, that you still wear your mask for protection. And it's also, I mean, just to add on to that, I mean, one of the things we do know about the vaccines is that as um, uh, Dr. Jarissa just mentioned, it protects you from getting sick with the virus. We're not, we're still not 100% sure yet whether or not after the vaccine, the vi I may have the virus sort of um, uh, in my body, but not getting sick from it. And if I, if that's the case, then I could, you know, through no fault of my own and, you know, unknowingly spread that virus, even though I'm not getting sick because the vaccine has protected me. So one of the things that we, you know, at the CDC Foundation, the CDC is, you know, continuing to sort of emphasize is those, what we call mitigation measures, those measures that are used to control and decrease spread still need to be in effect um, as we continue to move through the vaccination process, just as Dr. Jarasa was talking about. So that's wearing your mask, washing your hands, um, being, you know, the social um, spacing and distancing. So you're, you know, not inside and crowded, you're, you're not inside and crowded, you know, conditions, et cetera. And for right now, both of the vaccines that are on the market, Pfizer and Moderna require um, a two dose series. So after the first dose, how well protected is someone? Do they absolutely have to get that second dose? And once they do get the second dose, um, how soon is the vaccine effective once they're done with the two-dose series? 
Yeah, so I think after the first dose, I mean, I, I've read about 80% um, effective in terms of protecting you. Um, but then the second dose, obviously, it's more of that 94 to 95%. So, um, so even more protected. Um, again, uh, typically, it might take, uh, you know, about two weeks or so for your body to begin producing the antibodies. Um, and that will be after the first and the second vaccine. Um, so it, it's still very critical that you get that second dose. Again, when we think about achieving, you know, herd immunity and having the majority of the population covered, um, you know, getting that 95%, you know, 94 to 95% efficacy will be, will be key to that. Great. I think that's a really important point. So you do hear people sort of saying, oh, no, the partial coverage, partial immunity, is that enough? And I think you've underscored that point that it is really critical for people to get both doses of the vaccine. And you talked earlier about um, mutations that are um, occurring right now with the, with the virus. Do you anticipate that in the future we might have a different vaccine because of these mutations that are happening? And with that, you know, how often do mutations occur with viruses? Yeah, I think the one thing I would, I would probably underscore is that um, mutations in viruses are normal. Um, so this is not, again, abnormal um, because it's, it's coronavirus. Um, and, and certainly we've heard reports of increased um, transmission or transmissibility um, in theory when, you, when you're looking at the data. Um, but, but again, this is not, this is not abnormal. Um, I think it will all depend on, on how it, it mutates. I mean, I think we just don't have enough information to say at this time. Right, and, and viruses can behave differently. So people are used to the idea that um, they get a flu vaccine every year because the virus that causes the viruses that cause influenza or cause the flu symptoms change and modulate over time. So that's why they need to, to make a new vaccine every year. Whereas there are other viruses that you get immunized against that you don't have to do that because they don't show that same um, likelihood of uh, changing or evolving. So like mumps, for example, or rubella vaccine. You know, as we talk about COVID-19 um, and the way we started this conversation, I think it has really um, kind of brought the idea of racial disparities also to the forefront. And um, I guess I'm curious to hear from you, um, both of you, uh, when we talk about health equity, um, I think it's important that we consider systems of power and oppression. I'm curious if you've seen um, racism affect um, the delivery of vaccines or if you have, if your, either of your organizations have um, prepared or considered how racism might seep in to how vaccines are delivered in that aspect. Well, I think one of the things that you all mentioned at the, the beginning of the podcast is that we, we know that structural racism increases the exposure to this virus. It increases the likelihood that you will get sick. And if you get sick, that you'll get really sick and the likelihood that you would die from this virus. And that we know that. And we, we know the, the connection points for why that is. And you went through many of them in terms of the kinds of occupations that people of color have where they live, how congested or how um, dense their living situations are, whether or not they can stay home from their jobs. Do they have uh, work flexibility that will allow that? Or are they gonna miss their wages? And so they are more likely to have to go to work when they're sick or more likely to have to ride public transportation even if they would prefer not to. 
So all of the things that we know about structural racism in terms of where people live, where they work, what put them at risk in the first place, that is why we are seeing the pattern. This is not unpredictable. Those of us in public health who do this work, as this was coming up, we knew that this was how it was gonna play out because we knew what the forces were that were gonna drive it to this, not conclusion, but to drive it to this, this pattern of having such a disproportionate impact. I think that those same forces are at play now. And so we have to actively undo them or actively be aware of them. And all of the things that uh, Dr. Jarasa just talked about in terms of how she was thinking about where the locations were, how she was thinking about getting over transportation barriers, barriers around time of day, people who work and don't have work flexibility can't come nine to five because they can't get off of work. Or, you know, so there's, there's so much of that, that if you don't take that into account, then that's the structural racism that led to that will undermine our opportunities to get you know, people of color vaccinated. So it takes a conscious and intentional effort being aware of all those structural barriers and doing what it takes to remove them to be able to sort of build equity in. And I think that you know, just kudos to Dr. Dress and her colleagues because you know, everything she laid out are the exact examples of doing that in a conscious, intentional way. Awesome, thank you for that. And I'm curious along with that and knowing how communities of color are disproportionately, have been disproportionately affected by COVID and especially hearing the discussions of how certain populations were um, prioritized with the vaccine. Um, I'm curious, are there, um, have communities of color, have there been initiatives to prioritize vaccine delivery um, to them as well? So at least at the at the local level, um, again, it's it's much of what I mentioned earlier um, that Dr. Smith just said, right? We 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 have the advantage of of knowing and understanding our community, um, and so we've really tried to devise strategies that that will reach those that are that are hardest to reach. Um, so the the mobile strategy again, recognizing um, you know our older adults, uh, many of our older adults, black adults, and senior housing sites um, who don't have mobility or the ability to to you know, they can't go to a mass vaccination site. Um, that would be very challenging. Um, and so we've, we've been intentional about how we've designed our, our strategy for dissemination uh, around that as we're thinking about that. Um, and we'll, we'll work again with hospital partners um, to look regionally, right? So um, we're, we're very fortunate in Baltimore City to have 11 acute care hospitals um, and they wanna support, um, they wanna partner with us. Um, we know the community well and we work with community-based organizations often, um, they have the clinical providers. Um, and so we're looking to partner with them. And again, you know, take kind of a regional approach based on what, what area of the city the hospital might be in, um, you know, what, what, you know, population are they, are they, you know, well-versed in. And so we've, we've really been intentional on in how we've kind of planned out our strategy and our outreach and communication to, to um, minority populations, our Latinx population here in Baltimore City has been particularly hard hit, um, as well as our, our older adults and black adults. 
Thank you so much, because I think you pointed with your answer, you also pointed out the idea of the intersection of identities and systems at play. So not just communities of color, but the intersection between communities of color and aging adults. And Dr. Smith, you mentioned uh, like um, socioeconomic status, the people who aren't able to call off work um, because of that. And I think that's an important detail not to miss. And so uh, my last just question, um, especially after hearing all the work that you're doing, Dr. Jarasa and um, Dr. Smith as well, is um, has COVID-19, especially from how intentional you've had to be to reach these communities, um, has it inspired your agencies to consider and implement any other type of structural changes um, that you think bring about greater health equity moving forward? Yeah, at least at the local level, um, you know, I, I am looking to create an office of policy and advocacy. Um, so we have a legislative director, we have a director of external affairs, um, but I'm really looking to create an office that is that is really devoted to how do we promote health equity here in the city, um, but also at the state level and even at the federal level, right? Understanding that, um, you know, when I think about kind of the local local health department and our, our interactions with, you know, other city agencies and city government, um, we should be at the table for every piece of legislation. We should be there, you know, indicating, um, you know, providing a health impact assessment for, for a particular piece of legislation. And so really trying to position us as a local health department to be that chief health strategist for, for the city and for policies as they're being developed. Um, so I am looking to create that office in the, in the coming months in my spare time. <laughs> and you know, part of my role specifically, my role is a new role with the CDC Foundation. Um, and uh, is to develop uh, an equity strategy for the entire organization and to ensure that it is integrated and interspersed in, throughout all of the work that we're doing. There's been certainly elements of it already. And I think it's, you know, as I said, we can be even more intentional um, about doing that. And that's the work that I'm leading. That's great. Thank you so much, both of you. And I think, you know, in terms of kind of our final thoughts, the question that probably all of us in healthcare receive the most is when will life return to normal? You know, and we know that we will not return to our previous normal and that our previous normal is not necessarily something that was really something to aspire to. But I think what people really mean is, you know, when will quarantine and distance learning and masking and closed borders and that kind of thing, when will they be a thing of the past? So what, what would you both say to that? And, and what are your other final thoughts? So, I mean, at, at, at least at the local level and, and in the city, we still have a number of restrictions in place and obviously um, have our, our, our mask order in place. Um, you know, we, we have tried, you know, to, to bring um, students back to school safely and, and are working now to um, vaccinate our educators um, and school staff so that we can, um, we can help support that. Um, we recognize how important it is for our children to also be in school learning. Um, but we, we're, you know, going to be vaccinating um, well throughout the, the rest of this year, I think. Um, when we're, you know, again, setting such a, a lofty target of, of really 60 to 80% of the population um, being vaccinated. Uh, so I think we, we still got at least through 2021 uh, where we're wearing, wearing masks and maintaining some, some social distancing. Yeah, I would agree. I know that it's hard to hear and people would prefer yeah. to hear uh, something that would sound better 
Um, but I think one of the things that Dr. Durasa talked about is a commitment to transparency and a commitment to honesty. And I think helping people manage their expectations so that they can prepare themselves for you know, what's likely to come and think about how they're going to get through it together, I think is really important. And so I think it's for a leader um, like Dr. Duressa to say, you know, this is what I'm expecting and you know, this is how I'm gonna be with you to help you prepare and sort of um, get through this together. But I think we don't serve people well to uh, tell them something that we know is not likely to be true, even if they would prefer to hear that. So we wanna thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Smith and Dr. DeRosa. Um, and this was, a, this was, I think, a very important conversation and I think a very, um, very timely and very um, helpful conversation. So thank you again. Thank you. Thank you for having me.